from Local 12 Sports. It's the Skinny Podcast. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome into the Skinny Podcast. It's the weekly poll three edition. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com Digital Sports Comedy Center with Rick Boring. As always, it's presented by Blake, the attorney, Maislin. We talk about sports topics of local interest. We occasionally have a national topic or two, which we do a little bit today with some crazy coaching news. Uh, and also a gambling segment in my favorite section of the podcast where you can ask me a question on anything. Just go to the Xverse, hit up the hashtag, ask any anything. doesn't have to be sports related. In fact, sometimes we prefer when they're not sports related, but they can be. You ask them, I answer them, and we get rolling from there. Rick is uh, up in the confines of Michigan after NKU fell last night to Oakland. They play Detroit coming up uh, over the weekend. So we'll talk some college basketball. We got Bengals to talk about, so we got a lot to do. And Rick, let's get to it. All right, let's jump right in. We'll start with the Bengals, Skinny. They beat the Browns in Week 18, 31-14. Good for Zach Taylor and his men as they finished with a winning record of 9-8. and eight. It was the Bengals' third straight season with a record over 500, and the AFC North became the first division since the 1970 merger to have all its teams finish above 500. Uh, just watching this game, Skinny, obviously I heard all the jokes from all you media types that it was the coldest preseason game ever, and I think that was an accurate way to, to describe it can't take much away from the actual performance, but a few things that did stand out was I thought the running backs early got it going. They were pounding away on the ground. Mixon finished with 14 carries for 111 yards and a touchdown. And Chase Brown finished with 11 carries for 43 rushing yards. So I guess one place to start is right there. Where are you at on this running back situation going into the offseason? Do you think Joe Mixon returns? Do they see him as the featured back going forward? Is it possible Chase Brown did enough to convince them he could take over that role on a, on a cheaper deal than you can bring Mixon back for? Where is this at now? Yeah, the Chase Brown usage or lack thereof once he was healthy was a little confounding to me, um, especially especially maybe in this game. I, look, I know they wanted to get Joe, even though they said they didn't care about milestones. They wanted to get him his, his thousand yards. And to the credit, they didn't give it to him 30 times to get it. He he earned it with a nice 44-yard run, so so kudos to him for that. You know, they obviously, you know, once Jamar Chase was close to 100 catches, they got in that little screen to start the second half, so he gets to his milestone. But to your question, I do think there's a bigger role for Chase Brown next year, come hell or high water. Um, and I don't know if Joe Mixon um, is in the future plans. And I said that last offseason, and I don't think they were. I think they were by default when Samaj P. Ryan left, to de- left for Denver. Um, they needed a running back, and, and Joe was the guy that at least had more of the complete package than trying to rely on a rookie or try to rely on Travion Williams. Obviously, they have no belief whatsoever in Chris Evans in any way, shape, or form, so that, that ship has kind of sailed. So I, I do think the, there's a real possibility that they go get a cheaper veteran than Joe Mixon that can you know, give you a maybe a third downish role, can give you maybe a, a closer role. feels like I'm talking about Samaj P. Ryan, someone of that ilk. Um, they just need more explosiveness from the running game, and Chase Brown gives them that. Joe Mixon gives them none of that, and I say that knowing he had a nice run on Sunday uh, against Cleveland backups, but they just don't have any explosiveness in the run game. He doesn't break tackles anymore. He doesn't have the juice he once did, and that's that's natural. I mean, you know, he's been in the league for a long time now. I mean, this was his his seventh season, uh, and, you know, after a while, the tread starts getting a little thin on guys like that, and so, yeah, I, I – I think only by default, once again, will Joe Mixon be back. And honestly, if he is back, they may ask him to take another pay cut in order to be back. I saw one of the betting websites had posted odds for Derrick Henry, the Titans running back of his next destination. Bengals had the second lowest odds there at plus 500. Does Derrick Henry interest you at all at this point? He interests me, but I just don't think you're going to be able to afford it. I mean, you got so many other things. You know, we'll get to the, you know, tagging T. Higgins. That's a $20 million tag, man. 
um, uh, finding another defensive tackle to replace DJ Reader, a, a nose tackle type of veteran in all likelihood, probably going into the free agent market to get another safety. Because I don't think they believe Dax Hill is a long-term solution back there. I think, honestly, his future is maybe more as a slot corner. Um, and Mike Hilton has one more year on his contract, so maybe that's more of the role for, for Dax Hill moving forward. So got, they need a right tackle, whether you pay Jonah Williams or go to the free agent market and get somebody of, of a little cheaper uh, route than that. They, they have too many holes to fill, in my opinion, to make a run for Derrick Henry. I, I, I'd i like to see it because I do think there's there's not the Derrick Henry of 30 carries left in him, I don't think, but there is the Derrick Henry of 15 carries sharing the load with Chase Brown, in my opinion. Yeah, and you also think about some of those tough yardage situations that the Bengals found themselves in, weren't able to either go with a run play in those situations sometimes, they'd get cute, or they couldn't get it when they did try it. Adding Derrick Henry to the mix would certainly change things as it relates to that. You mentioned uh, Joe Mixon potentially taking less money. Where would they be if they just cut him? How much money do they save there? Yeah, I'd have to look. I think the savings would be, I want to say it's – well, it's five mil because that's his salary. Um, I, I know there's some dead money in there because of the of, of his signing bonus prorated. I, I want to say I'm doing this off the top. I had three to three to three and a half million, something like that. Um, okay, so it would save them a little bit if they did decide yes. to, to cut him. And, I, and again, I think a lot of it is is isn't isn't as much salary based as it is productivity based. He just he's just not a productive back anymore. And and um, you know, again, you you can go look up advanced metrics if you'd like. I mean, he is at the bottom of the rung in advanced metrics in a lot of ways. The receivers in this game, Skinny, the two big names were Charlie Jones. He had three catches, 49 yards. And Andre Yosefash, who had five receptions, 36 yards, two touchdowns. Are either of those guys significant contributors next year? I think they're hoping Charlie Jones is as a slot guy, um, you know, and because uh, I don't I don't think they bring Tyler Boyd back. I think that's pretty, pretty well recognized at this point. Well, I think Tyler Jeremy Rowe went after him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I yeah. I, I do think that that for Charlie Jones, I think you saw a glimmer of what you're hoping for next year. A few jet sweeps, right? You ran two jet sweeps on Sunday. Caught a nice seam route. Beat, beat his guy off the line of scrimmage and ran a really good seam route. I think for him, it's it, he needs to show this staff that he understands what to do in zones, where to sit down, how to read the language of the quarterback, get the trust of the quarterback. And, and that's a that's a big ask in, in one offseason. But I do think they're going to try to build towards that. And if you bring T. Higgins back, then you are kind of set at wide receiver. Yoshivash becomes your fourth or fifth. You know, you bring Trent Irwin back again. He's your fourth or fifth. And, you know, th- at that point, the receiver room loses an aging Tyler Boyd for um, a younger, quicker, faster Charlie Jones. Less experience, I will certainly give you that. But sometimes the way to gain experience is just get thrown into the fire and see what you do. So I, I do think he has to build some of that trust in OTAs and, and through mini camp and into training camp. Uh, but I, I think Charlie Jones, honestly, as goobies as it sounds, has a bigger potential role than Andre Yoshivash does. It feels like the Bengals always have, and maybe this is every NFL team. We, we're just close to, to the Bengals, so I notice it more probably. But there's always that fourth, fifth receiver on the roster that the fan base is always sort of clamoring for, going, this guy looks like he can play. Why didn't he get more touches? They need to use him. Well, when so-and-so leaves, he'll step in and he'll be a big factor. Um, it feels like Jones and Yoshivash are like right on that same cusp but I don't know that they've given us a, enough yet to be like, oh, okay, they're ready. They're definitely yeah. going to be a, a surefire starter. 
Yeah, and for Charlie Jones, obviously he got uh, set back a little bit by that injury that had him on IR for a period of time, so that takes away some time for him to get some practice reps and all those things. Um, and, and I do think if he had taken a bigger step forward this year, I do think you'd have seen him get a few more snaps than he wound up getting. Again, you did have Tyler Boyd ahead of you, but as we saw as this year progressed, that's a Tyler Boyd that's not the Tyler Boyd of two or three years ago. It just isn't. Um, you know, dropping balls, not as fast, not as quick. Um, some games it feels like he totally disappears when he's – in theory, when T. Higgins and Jamar Chase are out there, he's the one that's supposed to be getting the mismatch. And that's just, again, he's been in the league for a long time. He's been in the league since 2016. You just, you know, you can't put this stuff in a vacuum. You do age, and some guys age differently. I don't think he's washed out of the NFL, but I don't think he's ever going to be a highly effective receiver again. And he really wasn't this year. I mean, you can look 66 catches over a, a 17 game schedule for a slot guy isn't exactly tearing it up. I know you think Tyler Boyd will not be back with the Bengals next year. Did you think the way he was sort of walking off the field, saying bye to camera, saying, I appreciate you Cincinnati. Did you think that pretty much signified everything right there that he knows he's gone? Yeah. And, and, you know, the fact that, that after the game, there were I think two or three of us that kind of sidled up to him as he got dressed and he goes, he goes, Oh, you guys want to do this now? And we said, yeah, I mean, we could have done it on Monday, but Monday gets really hairy with you're trying to get a bunch of different guys on a Monday. Um, and so he kind of stood there and held court for a period of time. Jake Browning popped in, who's next to him in the in the locker, actually kind of impromptu, and he patted him right here and started talking about what he meant to the team and to the locker room. So um, I, I think even teammates obviously know that that was kind of the swan song for him and just kind of the way Tyler talked. I think he understands it. Um, he did say he'd like to be back, but I just don't see any feasible possibility that, that he is back. Skinny, what's the first storyline you have your eye on heading into the offseason? I think it's the T Higgins situation. Um, you know, the franchise tag deadline, I believe uh, it opens on February 20th and closes on March 5th. So in that period of time is when you would have to slap the franchise tag on him. Um, and, and I think that's, I, I've vacillated on this a billion times. I think I'm now settling, especially after hearing from Joe Burrow on Monday, that that's the route they're probably going to go is to slap the franchise tag on him. It's not going to make his agent, David Mulligetta, who was also Jesse Bates's agent, not going to make him happy. Um, probably we won't see him for a chunk of training camp like we didn't see Jesse, but eventually Jesse signed it because he knew he needed to sign it. And T will do the same thing and T will come in and be a pro because he is a pro. Um, and he'll hopefully have a better year than he had this year and then go make himself a bunch of money like Jesse Bates did. I think that's that's the route to go. I, the, the other scenario would be if if you're the Bengals and you don't feel like you want to go that route or you're going to tag him with the concept of potentially trading him. You also have to tag him with the concept, if you're thinking of trading him, that you're going to also then have to play him on that tag, that maybe there's not a, a market that, that suits you out there for T. Higgins. So I, I do think, you know, you you still have a good chunk of this roster, the core of this roster that's coming back with a healthy Joe Burrow. I, I do think you try to run this back as close to, to what it has been as possible, and, and T. Higgins is a big part of that. All right, and the Bengals are set. They will select 18th in the NFL draft on April 25th. We will be discussing that pretty much all offseason, I'm sure. So uh, any other thoughts on the Bengals here before we move on to the college football? Yeah, I mean, it's just it, it's an important offseason. I mean, like I said, you're, you're right tackles going in free agency in all likelihood unless you decide to re-sign him in Jonah Williams, but that's going to cost you. As I mentioned, they've got real decisions to make at, at, at the safety spot. I do think Jordan Battle – showed he has a role as a first and second down run guy and maybe will evolve into more of a third down guy. We saw mostly Nick Scott come in third downs in, in his place. But uh, listen, man, from from the Kansas, the end of the Kansas City game on, it felt like a lot of people were rolling the bus over Dax Hill on that back end from from with coaches to teammates. 
um, that it just he just didn't play well, didn't communicate well, and it and it cost them a lot of big plays. All right, let's move on to college football. National championship game was this past week. Michigan rolled over Washington 34-13. Michigan running back Blake Corum earned offensive MVP honors, and defensive back Will Johnson earned defensive MVP. Corum finished with 21 carries for 134 yards and two TDs, and Johnson had two tackles and an interception. Uh, Once again, Skinny, the semifinals, much better than the actual championship game. It feels like it's been that way pretty much every year with the four-team playoff. Um, You know, Michael Penix, I kept commenting on him, leading up to this and saying, I just don't trust him. I don't think he's that top tier quarterback. Like he's like the numbers would suggest he is. And like the season would suggest he is. He kept shoving it up my rear end. He certainly did in the semifinals when I picked against him, he was fantastic. But in this game, finally, we saw Michigan's defense really get to him. He just wasn't the same guy. He goes 27 of 51, 255 yards, one touchdown, two interceptions. I thought that was really the big story of the game was the way Michigan's defense kind of overwhelmed him in that Washington passing attack. Yeah. And that Michigan defense all season showed it was elite. Um, no, no question. I, I think the, the caveat, and I even said it last week was, you know, the big 10 just wasn't very good this year. So were they elite elite um, or were they elite playing against bad offenses a lot of times? And so that was the thing you had to sort out. And obviously it proved to be elite, uh, you know, the eyeball test proved that they are at least, one of the top two teams in the country. They are the national champion. I still think on a neutral field, Georgia beats them, but Georgia didn't get a chance to do that. And that's their, their problem. But from an eyeball test standpoint, Michigan looked the part, Rick, I think you'd agree with this all year long. It was just a matter of, was the schedule showing more of that or was it just them dominating a a schedule they should have dominated? I couldn't agree more. Do you think that the expanded playoff fixes that issue, the Georgia issue that you're talking about? I do. I, I do. Because then th- then you get a swing at it, right? I mean, I, I just hate for a team that's, you know, you're almost defined by that one game, which Georgia was, the, the one loss costing them a spot when, again, arguably it's, it's just it's just a game. And, you know, Alabama lost a game and Texas lost a game, but you lost a game that knocked you out. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think that that will avoid that scenario, to be honest with you. Yeah, it became too much about the timing of when you lose. It's like you lose early in the season, you can overcome it. But if you lose late in the season, then it counts tenfold against you. And also, I mean, that's just not, I don't think, representative of what a a college football season or any athletic season is truly about. Because over the course of the season, you want to evolve. You want to get better. You have guys out. You have guys, you know, improve. Like, I just think that teams change over the course of a season and sometimes the best team doesn't necessarily go undefeated or, or only win one game. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and listen, Michigan probably doesn't make it. They might've, they probably don't make it if Ohio state finishes off of that drive in the final regular season game. Right. I mean, and Ohio state unfortunately doesn't make it because they don't finish off that final drive. And so your season in essence is defined by a drive at the end of the game, both good and bad, good for Michigan because they made the stop bad for Ohio state because they threw the pick. But maybe Ohio State, if it's in, um, finishes this thing off with a championship. And so I do think that's where the expanded playoff is going to be really, really uh, much more interesting. Could you imagine if Ohio State had just won the national championship, how different all the narratives and storylines of college football would be right now? I mean, as it stands, people are ready to fire Ryan Day and think he's completely torn down the Ohio State program. But you're not wrong, Skitty. I mean, they're one possession away from all of this can being completely different. Now, obviously you have the whole college football playoff that would still have to play out. They'd have to yeah, be sure. successful on that. But um, yeah, it just, it does feel to me like we have ended up with not the two best teams 
in the championship game the yep. last few years, and that's been reflected in, in the final score. Uh, one thing that I find hilarious about this, and I think you and I are both on the same page that we didn't think the Michigan cheating scandal was that big of a deal in terms of the advantage that it was giving Michigan throughout the year on the field. Um, but at the same time, I think it is hilarious that Michigan fans think because they won those games after Connor Stallions was discovered and thrown off the the coaching staff and everything that they, they won these big games and they went on to win the championship without him, that it means it's going away and no one's going to discuss it anymore. And no one should be allowed to bring it up anymore. It's like, are you insane? It was never about the big advantage you had over these teams. It was about the ridiculousness of how brazen you were to yes. cheat in this manner, what it says about you, what it says about the people running your institution and your program, and also how hilarious it is that it ever happened in the first place. Sorry, these jokes are still coming. You're not getting off the hook. We're going to talk about this for decades to come. And, and and if you're a Michigan fan, you can just flash your ring at me. I, I get you. I'm noting you. Yeah, 100%. But, I mean, to act like this should be all forgiven. First of all, the big advantage here was not that you knew the place. It was that – other teams knew that you had done it, so then they had to spend time in their preparation for you thinking, okay, do we need to change play calls? Do we have to go with a different signal? Do we have to do – that's all coaches want. They want you wasting your valuable, precious preparation time on things that don't really matter or that you wouldn't normally focus on. And that's exactly what Michigan did, not even just for the games that Connor Stallions was there, but all throughout the college football playoff. You're sitting there if you're the opposing coach thinking, well – they probably scouted us at some point. They probably have that information somewhere. Maybe we should change something up this week and make sure they're not going to know what we're running. So, I mean, it still had an impact even in the, the post-Connor Stallions days. Yeah. How about Connor Stallions being at the Rose Bowl as well? That was beautiful. By the way, they should have let him up on the podium. He deserved it. I, I, I believe that. They should have let him hold the trophy at the end. What if Harbaugh gives him a share? Oh, he well, Harbaugh wants to give all the, the kids a cut of the money. I, why wouldn't he? He's like a, a communist. Get Connor Stallion yeah. something, too. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's move on to college basketball, Skinny. Uh, we'll start with Kentucky. UK had the comeback win at Florida, 87-85, and then blew out Missouri, 90-77. to The Cats will play at Texas A&M on Saturday at 2 p.m. And, and Skinny, maybe the most interesting part of this week for Kentucky wasn't even necessarily their wins, but – all the teams ahead of them, pretty much except for UConn, losing. I mean, are we about to see Kentucky move into, like, the top three here all of a sudden? Yeah, they got a big game at A&M on the road. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's trending in that direction. I mean, they're, they're, they're really – I mean, they have a loss at Kansas on a neutral early, and, you know, those November games do count. Um, they do mean something, but I think everybody knows that teams either evolve or devolve from, from that point forward. And then the inexplicable loss to Wilmington um, – Again, it's going to slip up at some point. They gave up 85 to Florida. They gave up 77 Missouri. They, uh, you know, Aaron Bradshaw does make a difference defensively. We saw that in the Florida game, literally with him blocking a, a game tying layup attempt. And and uh, uh, I think he's helped with their rebounding a little bit too. They're going to continue to score. They're going to score on everybody. It's a matter of that night where, for whatever reason, the other team is able to put a few more shots in. That that they're going to slip up against somebody they shouldn't. But uh, it's a it's a great offensive team because they've got so many ways to beat you. And now now you got a pick and pop five, and even a post five you can go to when you want to, um, or post up uh, post up Trey Mitchell on a smaller four if you want to. I mean, you got a variety of ways to score, and they're showcasing that. I thought that Kentucky, with the way they were shooting threes that that was really important to their success, that they needed to make threes. But in this Florida game, 
I was really impressed because Florida made everything in that first half. They had eight threes in that first half. It just felt like one of those games where you're on the road, the other team is hitting everything, their crowd is into it. It's just not going to be your day. They're down by as many as 11 in the first half, eight at halftime of that game. And then in the second half, I mean, Kentucky, one, found a way to win without their three-pointers going down. And two, they shut off Florida's water from the perimeter. I mean, one for 11 in the second half from three after making those eight threes in the first half. It was a completely different game. I was really impressed that with Kentucky only making five threes throughout this game, the shot's not going down, that they turned the momentum around and found a way to win. That, to me, says that they are a team that's maturing, and they've got a few more weapons than they did earlier this season when they lost that game to Wilmington now. And I think also getting used to knowing you're going to have a seven-foot shot blocker behind you, whether whether it's Bradshaw or Onwenso. I mean, one of those guys is going to be in the game. In fact, I think late on a possession, he had both those guys in the game uh, for rim protection. So um, I think some of that's getting used to that, too, where maybe earlier in the year when you were out on shooters and you got blown by, well, you got blown by and there was nobody to help. There was nobody at the rim to stop that. Now – getting used to that, maybe even at halftime, tell them, hey, get up on them. If they go around you, we've got a guy back there to protect the rim for you. So um, stop giving up open shots. And so getting used to playing with those guys probably defensively is going to take a little bit. I just don't know if this team's ever going to be elite, but can it be good enough? And I think with the seven-footers back, it can. Yeah, well, the other thing the seven-footers give you is now you just have this ultimate roster flexibility. Like they were really struggling to get rebounds in that game especially uh, through kind of the mid part of the game. And and that was how Florida's hanging around. And then at the end, it's just like, well, let's stick two of the seven footers on the floor at the same time. And now rebounding isn't really an issue when we need to get this stop and, and get this defensive board. So um, you can do a lot of different things, whether you want to go big lineups, defensive lineups, if you need to missing, go smaller they're, more they're athletic, missing a, a, a nice, yeah, they're missing a nice Swiss army knife piece in the arrow at the moment too. Yeah, he definitely makes a big difference in that roster flexibility as well. You can play him at the four. So, I mean, they just have a lot of different things they can throw at you in, in different situations when they need it. I think that's helping them right now. Uh, since that UC, skinny, UC came back and ended up beating up on BYU, who was number 12 in the country at the time, 71 to 60. And they lost on a shot in the final seconds to number 25, Texas, 74-73 earlier this week. The Bearcats will play at number 14 Baylor on Saturday at 8 p.m. It just doesn't stop in the Big 12 Conference now. This is every single game. Um, Skinny, this this uh, BYU performance was really impressive, I thought. And it was a win that Wes Miller needed in the worst way. I'm, in my opinion, that's his most impressive win yet as a head coach. Yeah, it also helped that Mark Mark Pope took the only guy making shots for his team off the floor for six minutes. What, I mean, what, what, are, what are you doing? Did you see his quote on why he did it? I, I still don't understand what he's talking about. The, maintaining matchup integrity? I, what, I don't know what that means. I don't either. I, I honestly don't. I, I think that was talking about the kids' defense wasn't good enough, I think. I, I guess, and maybe it wasn't, but defense wasn't really your issue. I mean, uh, putting the ball in the basket. He was nine for whatever. What was he, nine for 12? The rest of their yeah. team was four for 32 from three. It was one of the best individual shooting performances I've ever seen in my life. I mean, Steph Curry-esque. And the guys on a heater, not only do you not take a guy on a heater off the floor like that because you don't know if he's going to lose it, but second, I mean, he kept him off the floor for like five or six straight minutes as yes. he watched his team's lead just disappear. And, and Cincinnati take all the momentum, mind-blowing coaching moves from Mark Pope in that game. That wasn't the only one, by the way. There are a few other no. decisions. Like, yes. What's going on here? Um, but credit to Cincinnati. I mean, Victor yes. Lockin was great down the stretch, 17-7. and seven. Um, he also had 17 points against Texas, so he's definitely picked it up. And that was one question mark I had 
this UC team is like, is Victor Locken, he was a, a good big man in the American. But I didn't know that he would be able to do what he did in the American against Big 12 competition. That was a real concern for me going into conference play for UC. But he's been pretty darn good through their first few games here. Yeah, as I say, he's done it back-to-back games. He had a good game against Texas as well. I think the thing for them right now, again, if you're a UC fan, I would, I would, I would think you take a lot of confidence from these first two games. And and, and the disappointment of Texas is very disappointing because you had a lead, a three-point lead with with less than a minute to go on your home floor and couldn't finish it off. But it also, I think, has shown like maybe you can belong in these games. The only caveat I would give to that is. It is a grind. There's really no break whatsoever. There were breaks in the American, man. There was a game with Tulane coming to town or East Carolina coming to town. There's no breaks here. There literally are none whatsoever. Um, and so to me, that's that's the part that um, that's the part that can become cumulative, right? Where, okay, you're one and one. You want to got a nice road win. You, you should have beat Texas, but you didn't. So unfortunately, it's one and one. And then to your point, it's Baylor. And then TCU comes to town and Oklahoma comes to town. And then you got to go to Lawrence. Um, Again, I I thought two wins out of these first six was a pipe dream. And they could still go one in five and play really well going one in five. Yeah. Although, I mean, getting that first win on the road at BYU, that changes a lot of this math in the first six games. And then to follow it up, to follow it up with the way you played against Texas. Yeah. I mean, you were thinking 0 and 6 is a legit possibility, even if they played pretty well. Um, to get that big win on the road was good. Had you started 2-0, it's really – I mean, the fan base is over the moon at that point. But it's getting one other guy I wanted to mention here was a C. Spandego. I thought he was great in the BYU game. Had 12 points, 10 rebounds in 22 minutes. Gave them something defensively. Was a real difference maker. But then against Texas, only played 15 minutes. 0 for 3, no points, 5 rebounds. Dylan DeSue did whatever he wanted on the offensive end for the Longhorns. I guess that would be my concern right now if I'm a UC fan is which SC Spandego is the real SC Spandego uh, going in Big 12 play? Is he going to get bullied a lot and be kind of a non-factor like he was against Texas? Or can he have more nights like he did against BYU where he's a double-double guy? Yeah, I think I think the one good part would be that Jamil Reynolds played well in that game. So, you know, if it's a night where one of them's off, the other one's on, you just decide to play that guy more minutes at the five than the other guy. And so I do think that gives Wes Miller a little bit of flexibility there. But But you're right. I mean – um, you know, the Texas game, he really did get bullied. And, uh, you know, Baylor's obviously always got length, and we'll see what that looks like. Um, you know, BYU, I, I will say this, they are really much more of a finesse team, and maybe for him that worked out in his favor because um, yeah. he actually had a good performance, I believe, against them last year when he played for Utah Valley against BYU. So maybe it's just that's a good matchup for him because there's not a lot of good matchups in front lines in that league. I mean, Hunter Dickinson is just a, a ridiculous matchup for anybody. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt about that. And I, I just, I think, um, you know, it's still early for Aziz. He's still getting comfortable. And I don't think it's fair to, to pass judgment on exactly what he is right now. But I also think it's fair to say that he's not what UC fans expected when they were clamoring for him to get his waiver and get approved and, and thought he was going to be a huge difference maker. I just don't think he is. He has added up to that for them yet. Uh, skinny NKU had the big home win over Youngstown State 79-76. Then they lost a tough one at Cleveland State in overtime on Sunday, 88-85. And then last night, they lose at Oakland in overtime, 70-65. The Norse will play at Detroit on Saturday at 1. Still trying to find their way with Sam Vinson. The the Youngstown State win was a huge one. Um, And then you go, probably the two toughest games left on your schedule, at Cleveland State, 
at Oakland. You still have at Wright State, so that may be like right in there. I didn't check the exact Ken Palm uh, prediction metrics there of, of which would be the toughest. But all three of those games are your toughest games left. And, I mean, NKU had a chance at both of those last two against Cleveland State and against Oakland. And, and both games felt like tournament games. They came down to the final possessions. They just couldn't find a way to pull those out. So do you look at that and you think – okay, look at them, they're still fighting, they're still battling with the top teams in the league without Sam Vincent, or do you look at it and say those are games that you'd expect them to win and without Sam Vincent they're not finding a way to pull them out? Yeah, I don't know if they win either one of those games with Sam Vincent. I mean, it, it's it's arguable to say yes because he's such a key player. Um, you know, they could have lost both those games with him. I think it's, to me, it's just opportunity loss because you had a chance to, to win both games and you lose them both in overtime. Um, you know, Fort Wayne ends up losing to Youngstown last night at Youngstown, and uh, they were the top dog in the league. So, you know, you'd have been back climbing for the one seed in the league, perhaps. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's what it's all about is this whole seed process. And then see again how this team continues to gel without Sam Vincent. They've got plenty of time to do it, plenty of games to to, to get used to it um, and, and see how they do moving forward. It seems like to their credit. They have fought through that as much as they possibly can. And again, I know the simple answer would be, well, if they had Sam Vincent, they win those games. I, again, I, I can't tell you that for sure. I, I think, again, it's just it's opportunity lost. Yeah, I think the other good thing for them right now is the league is so bunched up at the top. You've got Oakland and Green Bay at five and two, and then Wright State and Purdue, Fort Wayne and Youngstown State and Cleveland State all at four and two. And then NKU uh, it, or Milwaukee's at three and two and NKU's at three and three. So all of those teams really within the top seven right now, still very much in contention in the Horizon League. And I think that's been good for NKU. There's been a lot of parity that no team yeah. has run out to like an undefeated start. So they'll stay in the mix for one of those top four seeds, I think, for most of the season with the way that they're playing right now. And to the credit, I mean, they do get better under Darren Horn as the season goes along. And again, I know he's obviously been throwing a different curveball with the Vincent injury, but um, if this team does improve like they have under him in, in, in the last few years, yeah, I mean, they're literally only a game out of the loss column out of first place. Yeah, well, and, and the other thing about the, the Sam Vincent situation is, you know, they were looking at a team with a short bench. I think they were playing well and they realized they were figuring it out when Sam Vincent was there. So they kind of just eliminated those extra guys from the rotation and said, we'll just stay with our top six or seven all game and, and play our best basketball. But now that Sam's going down, you no longer have that option. All of a sudden you're looking deeper at that bench, trying to find a, an extra guy for certain minutes here and there. And it's led to guys like Jeremiah Israel taking a major step forward. Randall Pettis now all of a sudden the last two games has come up with some big plays and big shots. And, and he was a guy that really had been relegated to the end of the bench, wasn't playing at right. all before the Sam Vincent injury. So now you've got that freshman back in the mix, making some plays for you as a 6'2", big, strong athletic guard. Um, I, I think, you know, LJ Wells is another guy too at the forward position. He played really, really well in this game at Oakland. Uh, yeah, I had a friend. I had a friend of mine. He's a season. Yeah, I had a friend of mine. He's a season ticket holder, and uh, we went to dinner on Saturday night. And uh, he had gone to the previous home game. I guess it was the Youngstown game, and he didn't know his name. He said they had this one kid. I can't think of his name. He goes, he really was impressive. So we went to the roster, and he pointed at LJ. He goes, that guy. I go, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, again, for his eyeball test, he started to show something too. Yeah, I mean, when you've got Trey Robinson and LJ Wells both going at the same time, and for most of the year, it's been like one or the other. One will do a little bit, but then the other doesn't have really much production at all. If you have both of those guys going at the same time, you also you have two six seven, six eight ish skilled forwards that are athletic. 
that means a lot in the Horizon League. You it can sure do a does. lot of damage with guys like that, especially ones that defend and and have some IQ on the offensive end like both of those guys do. So I think there are some definite good signs for the Norris despite the, the close losses in overtime over the last two games. All right, let's move on to Xavier. They lost 80-75 at home against number four UConn on Wednesday night. The Musketeers will play at Providence on Saturday at 2. And skinny up, I'm only reading one score for Xavier because that's all they've had. They've just yeah. been on a long break for this whole time. Uh, that's why they're last here. They had some chances in this UConn game, but it felt kind of uh, almost like the Purdue or Houston games to me where it was like they, they stayed within striking distance. You felt pretty good about their performance, but I don't think they were necessarily ever seriously threatening to win the game either. It didn't feel like they ever had enough momentum to get over the top. By the way, did I miss Klingon getting hurt? Has he been hurt for a while? Yeah, he's been he's been out for about three weeks now with okay. uh, a knee injury. Totally missed it. Yeah, I totally missed it. Yeah, I, I'm going to ask you a question, and and I, I it, it's probably not fair. Are they asking Desmond Claude to do too much on both ends of the floor? Yes, without question. And I think that's that's a great point, Skinny. I think a lot of fans are getting confused by Xavier is not or Desmond Claude in his current form is not good enough to make Xavier a Big East team. That's a fact. And fans are getting con- that confused with the the idea that Desmond Claude isn't any good, right? Yeah, right. I mean, he's just right. he, he's made a huge jump. He's doing a ton of things for this team. He's he's rebounding. He's assisting. He's defending the other team's top guards. Yeah, I mean, he's doing all these different things. And sometimes it's a point guard he's guarding. Sometimes it's a power forward he's guarding because he's got that type of versatility and they need him to be that type of player. But on the offensive end, he's missing shots. And a lot of people are just looking at his raw numbers and saying, well, like, you know, three for 12 is not good enough. Well, when you do a little deep diving, you realize four or five of those shots are coming at the end of a shot clock because nothing has gone on that entire offensive possession. And then they're just throwing a hand grenade to him and saying, you go do your thing and figure it out now for us. Your shooting percentages aren't going to be very good, especially if you're a guy like Desmond Claude, who let's face it, he's still developing. He's not an outside shooter yet. That is one of his biggest weaknesses is his his touch from the outside and even from the mid range. So that's a part of his game that is still still developing. He's, he's getting better. He's improved a ton since last season. He's clearly Xavier's best all around player. Quincy Oliveri, I, I think a lot of people would say is their best player because of what he's meant to them offensively. And that's certainly a fair argument, but Desmond Claude has been good for Xavier. He just hasn't been enough for them to be a good biggies team this year. So what's the answer there? What can you take off of his plate if you're Sean Miller, if anything? And maybe you can't. Yeah, get more talent. And I mean, quite honestly, at this point in the year, that ain't going to happen. So, I mean, you're kind of struggling through this year. I think they're going to continue to try to develop guys, and that's working. Trey Green has started to give them a little bit more offense. He had a really big shot in that UConn game where he kind of just took matters into his own hands, crossed a guy over, and dribbled into a three at the top of the key in in a critical moment. There, I mean, I say critical. It was still early in the game, but it felt critical because sure. Xavier was trying to get back in it. Um, I think they are, you know, developing some guys. I just don't think they have enough firepower on this team around Desmond Claude to really give him enough help, especially against the top teams in the Big East. Now, maybe when they play the Providences and Butlers of the conference, maybe it'll look more impressive, and Desmond Claude will be able to do what you need him to do to get you wins. But uh, yeah, I think against teams like UConn and Villanova and um, some of the other top teams in the conference, it's going to be more difficult. And what stinks if you're a Xavier fan is it feels like they're that close. And maybe they're not. Maybe it's more like this. But, I mean, the, what they did with Nova, what they did last night, um, it feels like you're that close. But that that close just feels like almost a chasm because there's just there's just no real set answer other to your point, get more talent, and you can't do that at the moment. Yeah, and I think 
don't get me wrong. Like they will be a better team in the last month of this season than they are now. Like I, I think it's going to be a, a slow, gradual buildup as this team continues to get better. And I think that's why you're probably a lot of Xavier fans are just going to be pissed off because of the record and the losses piling up. But I think if you're a reasonable fan that's watching this season, you're gaining a lot of optimism and hope about the future of the program because some of these young guys are showing things and you are competing with the top teams that you've played this year. I mean, you've played three games against teams that are currently ranked in the top five nationally of the eight people. And you've played all three of them fairly tough. I mean, you've been within a few possessions most of the game. You've had your opportunities where you've cut into their lead and either had a lead in the second half or been right there on, on the cusp of taking a lead. And uh, you haven't been able to pull the, pull out those games. But I think it's shown that the good thing now that you've gotten into, if you're a Xavier fan, is you're not really playing for a resume anymore. Right. You know, you're not going to get in that large bid more than likely with the way your your record is now. So the wins and losses don't matter as much. You just want to see improvement from your team and, and hope that you can be dangerous when the Big East tournament comes around. Yep, exactly. All right. Uh, anything else that you want to touch on in terms of college basketball before we get to some asking anything? No, to, to your point, though, um, I thought Kansas, Purdue, and Houston had kind of separated themselves a little bit. Maybe UConn's in that pack as well. I, I think there's a gap, and then maybe Kentucky heads up that next group of teams you talk about. But now, after watching what's taking place here in the early portion of the conferences, I'm not I'm not so sure how wide open this thing now is going to get. It just feels like there's so much parity this year. All the teams at the top feel like they're vulnerable, I guess is the right word to put it. To feel like they have some type of flaws to where they are vulnerable enough. And yeah, I can't wait to watch, you know, another two or three weeks into conference play to see how this thing really shakes out. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's get into some ask any anything. No betting this week. We're not going to go through the whole college or the whole uh, NFL playoffs. We will make a pick for the Super Bowl when we get down to that. Maybe the, the semifinals. Even we'll figure that out. But um, all right, Caesar Sportsbook posted an opening over under win total for the Reds at eighty two and a half. What does Skinny think of that number? Um, it's a weird number to me because you got to eighty two last year after starting twenty one and twenty nine before you started bringing up all the kids. You've improved the roster and the pitching staff, both in the starting rotation and the bullpen. I think I'd hammer the over there. We're basically saying, do you expect this team to be over 500 this year? Yeah. Right? That's kind of what that bet is. I, I can't imagine there's many people in the city of Cincinnati, and we're all biased, but I can't imagine there's many people in the city right now who feel like this is going to be an under 500 baseball team. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that that Ellie backslides and McLean backslides and Encarnacion Strand backslides and Abbott backslides. It's a lot of guys you're you're talking about backsliding here because that's the one thing I really like about this team is is not just the the, the young talent level; it's the depth. It's the depth in the rotate. There's going to be a couple of legitimate guys who will start this season in Louisville that would be in the rotation or were even in the rotation last year and maybe even have some success in the rotation last year. Skinny, it feels like for most of my life, the Reds have done a lot of, uh, this kind of goes back to the Jim Bowden days, a lot of like, let's grab this guy off the scrap heap and hope he has his best career year ever. And if that works out, we'll be good. Yeah, Ron Malone. That's not what the Reds are doing here. They're saying, here's a bunch of young guys that have already proven themselves to some extent. We just hope they continue to get better and we'll be better. And I mean, like that... That seems a lot more reasonable to me than the the former version of, of trying to do things. I mean, so. we're, we're trying to figure out a place to play Jonathan India, right? I mean, you're trying to figure out where, where, where are you going to play? That guy That guy's a core guy in, in some ways. Yeah, no no doubt. Uh, all right, Coach Skinny was about to win by double digits and advised his team to dribble out the clock. 
But coming out of a timeout, his team on the floor gathered and decided to set up a play they thought a player that they thought deserved a bucket. The ball goes in and the buzzer sounds. Coach Skinny must shake hands with the opposing coaches and players and then head to the locker room. What happens next? This is obviously playing off the Jameis Winston situation with the Saints where he was told to take a kneel down against the Falcons and he instead, along with his teammates, decided to run a play to get their running back a touchdown. Um, they wouldn't get their uniforms off. They would be right back on the court running until I felt like they couldn't run any longer. How about that? (laughs) Really? In fact, I would say, guys, before we start running, put a garbage can there, a garbage can there, and a garbage can there. Are you allowed to still do that in 2024? I thought that uh, was like... I would give them water breaks probably, but um, yes, I would run them until they couldn't run any longer. Wow. Um. I love this move by Jameis. This is an all-time Jameis Winston. This is the most Jameis Winston thing ever, is it not? I mean, what a what a clown! How does he take him seriously in a locker room and like during meetings and stuff when he acts? Exactly. Like, he is so comical when he talks to the media. And I mean, my my goodness! And, and the coach has to bear the brunt of that, right? He's the one out there even telling the other coach, "I understand. You're right. My bad. I get it." And Without he did. being able to say, "Hey, he I didn't do it." Yeah, he got lit up. Uh, yeah. It's unacceptable. I don't know what you do with NFL guys. You can't punish them the way I would punish a high school kid. But, um, you know, I would certainly I, – I, I don't know. I, I, that's the thing. I don't know how you'd handle it at the NFL level. I really don't. It, Jameis Winston is such a hilarious character in the NFL because he is just good enough that he'll always be on someone's sure. roster as a backup. Well, yeah. But he's also so serious and ridiculous that it's like no one really wants them on their team, I don't think. It's just, it's just a weird situation. Yep. Uh, all right. 34 straight years, there have been at least four different teams in the NFL playoffs that missed out the prior year. This year, there were six teams, the Browns, Steelers, Texans, Lions, Rams, and Packers. So first, is this just one of the reasons the NFL is the most popular sport in the country? And second, how much would Skinny be comfortable betting that the Bengals are one of the teams to do that next year? First, yeah, I think it is the reason. I mean, look at the Houston Texans. I thought that was probably a four-win team this year, and what a difference that draft made for them, both C.J. Stroud, Will Anderson, um, and even to a degree Tank Dell when he was healthy. Um, it was a third-round draft pick. Uh, so to me, it does show. I mean, the Bengals the Bengals went from 625-1 and one in Zach Taylor's first two years to the Super Bowl. I mean, like that. I mean, and so that is why I think it is. I mean, the Detroit Lions, before they hired Dan Campbell, were a laughing stock, and within two years – He's got them as a as a legitimate playoff team. Uh, so, yeah, I think that is why the NFL is so popular, because the, the turnaround can come so quickly. Well, what have we warned about with the college football realignment constantly, Skinny? That some of these teams are going to get into these super conferences, be middling or bottom tier for a decade, and fans are going to lose interest. Yes. In the NFL, it seems like that never happened. I mean, even when the Bengals or the Lions or someone goes decades with losing and it, it feels like such an outlier and their fan base does get uh, dragged to the turn and have, have that rough period. It's like still all of a sudden out of nowhere, you have that hope of the Bengals just turn it around with one draft pick in Joe Burrow and, and they're in the Super Bowl all of a sudden. So, I mean, that ability to turn around so quickly in this sport does, I think, really keep a lot of fans engaged. Yeah. To the answer of the bet, I'm not so sure I would, Rick. I, I, I this defense just has Listen, we can point to the Joe Burrow injury, and and we we had this discussion as as a group when we were in can when we were uh, in the press box on Sunday, of you know does Joe Burrow help them win either one of the Pittsburgh games? I could argue probably the first one, maybe not the second, because Pittsburgh played so well offensively, 
and that would have been enough to get them in the playoffs, right? But I don't think this was a Joe Burrow injury issue as much as it was the defense backsliding issue. And you're losing DJ Reader off of that defense. Um, you know, you 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 really you didn't find answers at safety, um, and so that that's a concern. You don't have any pass rush outside of Trey Hendrickson. Now maybe Miles Murphy takes a humongous step forward next year, and uh, you kick Sam Hubbard down inside on on third downs. I thought that's what they were going to do this year, and maybe he provides some pass rush juice. But the other part to it is Cleveland's got a pretty good roster. Baltimore's got a damn good roster. Um, Pittsburgh always finds out a way, figures out a way. And I think that's where you saw, and Zach Taylor has said it numerous times, and you, you kind of roll your eyes when you hear it, you know, their path, they think their best path to winning the Super Bowl is winning the AFC North. I think that's really, really hard right now. That is the biggest concern, I think. Because if you look at this season, and there's n- 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 you couldn't have any more things go wrong than went wrong and they still finished nine and eight. I mean, it's one game different from when the year the year they went to the Super Bowl and went ten and seven, right? But that it just, was my whole point. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, that that's the thing. They were one game away from missing the playoffs this year. They're one game away from. I mean, hell, there were teams with the same record as the Bengals who reached the playoffs this year right. in, in other conferences. So, I mean, that that is the big issue right now is the fact that they're in the AFC North. Um, I, I I do see that as a legitimate problem, though, because those other teams aren't getting worse. Uh, but that being said, Joe Burrow being back, he makes it. He makes at least a one win difference for this I would, team. I would, and that I would, would have think, been enough I, to put them in the playoffs. Yeah, I would think so, and that's probably fair to say. I you know, like I said, that first Pittsburgh game, they only scored ten points. They they hold Pittsburgh to sixteen. I would think a Joe Burrow led offense gets you seventeen. Um, but I do think the issues on defense are real, and I don't know how that gets fixed overnight. That's fair. All right, let's uh, go on this next question. A hypothetical new sponsor is requiring the Skinny Podcast to cover their alma mater during the basketball season. Please rank the following semi-local schools that you guys would have to add in the order of your preference. Miami, Dayton, Wright State, Ohio State, Louisville, Moorhead State, Indiana. Ooh, I think I'd go Ohio State. Yeah, I mean, this is easy. It goes Ohio State 1, Indiana 2. 2, yeah. Yeah. Then from there, I go... I know you I, wouldn't I, go Date. I know you wouldn't go Date. I'd go Dayton because, A, I love the arena, and, B, it's an easy drive. I mean, you got to go You got to go Louisville next, Just, even though they're a dumpster fire right now. That's a hilarious dumpster fire. To it is cover. a hilarious dumpster fire. The one thing is, for what was once a proud program and probably can be again at some point, um, you would get a chance to probably get into the t- season ticket base pretty easily. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, and if we're having to do this for the podcast, by the way, we're having to talk about these games. It means I'm having to pay attention and watch some of these games, which means yes. I'm not I'm picking the high major teams first because yes. I want to watch high major basketball. Um, I, I watch enough mid-major as it is. But once we get into the mid-major teams, surprisingly, you are right. I would go Dayton first out of those just because it's going to be the best basketball and the best atmosphere if you have to go up to a game. Then after that, it goes Miami, Ooh, Moorhead does State. It, does it? Yeah, Miami, and then Moorhead okay. State. Because, I mean, I'm going to go up and watch Travis Steele over well, that's a good any point. of these other teams that I love. And obviously, Wright State is dead last, and I would never talk about them even if they paid me 500000 a year to do this podcast. Well, I'm glad that question was asked, whoever asked that question, because it did always. I, I, you go full tilt on Wright State. It's always great. Well, it, I mean, who would, would you want to do a podcast about Wright State being in Cincinnati? Probably not. No, that's oh, a typical Lance McAllister move. He has, treats Wright State like they're the same as NKU in the city. He has Nagy on all the time to do interviews with them. I don't understand it. 
Uh, all right. If you guys could relive any year of your life, which year would you choose? This is a Ooh, good one. This is a good one. That's a good question right there. I think I'd go back to freshman year of college. The Bengals went to the Super Bowl that year. Again, it's kind of your first time living alone. Um, I really enjoyed my, my freshman year of college. Was guy, I, I get I had good grades. I was in a different major at the time. I was an accounting major. Um, once I got into the finance portion of that program, I got the hell out of it and got into journalism instead. Um, but I, I my, yeah, my first year of college was was super enjoyable. Nice first year of college. That's pretty good. This is a tough time for me to get asked this question because I'm. I'm coming off a year where I just had my first kid. So it's like, you know, hard to be like, oh, this wasn't the best year. Plus, I mean, NKU made the NCAA tournament this past year. I called that game against Houston. Um, a lot of good stuff going on this year. So this was a good one. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe go back to uh, the year I got married. We went on like two all-inclusive vacations. I got oh, wow. married. Yeah, I, I don't know. That was a pretty good one. I don't. I don't think there's a lot of like younger days that I would go back to just because like all I think about when being in my early 20s is like, God dang, I was broke. Right. No, I was too. Yeah. It's I like, was, yeah. No, I, I, I was working at a small daily newspaper in Maysville, Kentucky, driving back and forth and, and felt like I didn't have two, two nickels to rub together. Yeah. It's not it's not that I don't appreciate those times and I didn't enjoy the, the hustle and running around to a million different things. But it was just like it was nonstop trying to keep my head above water. It felt like for about five to 10 years there. So uh, I, I pretty much everything has gotten better since my twenties, I would say. <laughs> there you go. All right. Uh, that's it. That's the last question right. we got skinny. Appreciate it very much. We will be back next week. Talking some more college basketball, the Bengals off season in full swing, getting actually closer to pitchers and catchers reporting as well. We'll talk about all those things and much, much more on next week's podcast. For Rick Boyd, I'm Richard Skinner. It's been the skinny podcast, the weekly both re-edition presented by Blake, the attorney basic.